Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome, everyone, to a Monday morning edition of Inside the Firm, Monday Morning Coffee. I'm Alex Gore. I'm here with John Clausen. John is, to, uh, to be transparent, he's our insurance guy uh, for architecture and for contracting insurance. <coughs> it, there, I don't think, well, I know people like me don't like to think about insurance that much, <laughs> but it is very important. And there's different policies, um, and then there's different policies for architects versus builders. So we're going to do an overview. We're going to talk about that and kind of lay it out clearly so that people know what they need, what they should be looking for and what, what's involved. Uh, John, welcome to the firm. It's good to be here. <laughs> what, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got in insurance and how you started Lightship and what that's all about. Well, sure. Um, well, out of college, I was working at Campbell Soup Company and um, loved the company, didn't like the work. I was bored. I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial and so a uh, headhunter came to me and I started uh, looking at different opportunities. I ended up going into commercial insurance with Liberty Mutual almost 30 years ago. Um, I, I wasn't planning on going into commercial insurance. I don't think a lot of people wake up one day and say, hey, I want to become an insurance agent. But uh, I found the field to be very dynamic and I get to work with a lot of different types of businesses. Um, been doing this for 30 years now. And about uh, 13, 14 years ago, I decided to start Lightship Insurance. I'd worked at a direct writer firm before that but wanted to continue with, with a more broad perspective that Commercial Lines has. And at my other company, I was more focused on personal insurance. Gotcha. So uh, I started Lightship Insurance 13 years ago, and uh, it's been a fun run. It's been great. We focus specifically on construction. Um, it's our biggest area that we work on. It probably is uh, a tribute to my father, who was an engineer. Um, and so I've always been around a lot of construction most of my life. Yep. And I'd say that, that that's key, too. If you're looking for someone in insurance, there's someone that specializes in your area. It's it's way different than someone that doesn't. It's I don't know. I wanted to make a light speed away joke, but it didn't come. That's <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so you say, and are you mainly just Colorado? Yeah. So we are focused. The firm is based out of Denver. We are focused uh, really just primarily in Colorado. We have a few other surrounding states that we work with, but uh, primarily our focus is here uh, in the great state of Colorado. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Let's talk, talk architecture and let's talk, uh, maybe the simplest form of insurance, which is general liability insurance. What does that cover for an architect? What does that do for you? So we want to break it out a little bit. There's, there's, um, going to be some differences between an architect and a builder. So let's talk about the architecture, architecture firm first. As an architect, you want to make sure that you've got your general liability in place for any work that you do associated with construction itself. Now, sometimes as an architect, you may not be directly involved with that, but you still have indirect um, connection to that. So if something goes wrong on a project um, that's being built, we need to look at what's going to cover that, and that's going to be the general liability policy. So the general liability policy is probably best to first explain that a little bit, and that's going to cover a few different areas. The one that we think about um, is going to be first is going to be the premises liability. There's a million dollars usually on most policies for premises liability. That's going to be what we see on a certificate of insurance a lot of times as general aggregate limits, and there's going to be a million per occurrence, and then a general aggregate of two two million. It's going to be a really common limit, and that's basically. 
so my, I'm just going to say, even though Lance owns the firm with me, but my architecture firm, if I have this building, someone comes, something happens. Is that what you're talking about? Basically like right. homeowners kind of. Yeah. So, so here I am sitting in your, in your offices and that's going to be a premises exposure. So if I get hurt when I came into this office, tripped and fell, something like that, that matter, that's going to be your premises exposure. Okay? Yeah. The next part of a general liability policy is going to be the products of completed operations exposure, okay? So for uh, an architect, there's probably limited on that. That's gonna go more into something we'll talk about later, and that's gonna be the professional liability. But there could be something that you build. If you're involved in the building process, and sometimes architects do get involved in that as well, especially design build firms, then there's the general liability exposure associated with products and completed operations. So that's gonna be something, maybe step out of the architecture world for just a second. Think about somebody who's building widgets is the the crazy stupid term that i think yep, is used yep, yep. But, but let's just say you know you're building a, a car and or, or furniture pieces or furniture piece our architects or can want to make furniture all the time right so yes yeah, so if you build uh you build a piece of furniture and somebody sits down in that chair that you just built and that chair collapses that's going to be a product or completed operation yep. that's a different type of exposure so those all fall under the general liability um area of coverage from an insurance standpoint it uh, architects mainly make plans and a lot of times it's just digital, but it's also paper that's shipped out. Is general liability because you can't you can fall in a chair, you know that you make. But does this cover anything to do with plans? No. So really, what's with with architects, our biggest exposure that we look at for architects is going to be the errors and emissions insurance. And here I'll I'll try to clarify yeah. something that really is really confusing for a lot of people. Yeah. There are some technical differences between errors and emissions, malpractice, and professional insurance. But for most people, it's just better to assume that they're all the same thing. So yep. professional liability, malpractice, E&O, errors and emissions insurance, they're really the same thing. They're going to cover. And can we, pause, so just, just to wrap up, so general liability, think about that as your general policy, just like a, a homeowner's policy. I know it's not exactly the same, mm -hmm. but that's how you can wrap that in a bubble for architects, right? And then professional liability slash E&O slash malpractice, that's the next bubble and that's kind of covering what your what an architect is actually doing is right. that correct right okay no it's a good that's a good way of looking at it so yes for architects we are much more concerned about the professional liability than we would be for the actual construction project and last question before we move into the second bubble general liability um how, how are costs determined for that general liability the most typical rating basis will be three things okay but for an architect, it's a little bit different. We're going to kind of, it's going to do well into a little bit what it would be for, maybe say I'm a, I'm a builder itself. So for a builder, they're going to look at his sales, his subcontractor costs, and his payroll. Well, we, can well. we go into builder later? Yes, <laughs> I'm just trying to, yeah. trying to keep it. It's, it's hard to separate them out yeah. sometimes. That's all. But um, I can't remember. Our policy was in the thousands. Not the, I'm doing orders of magnitudes. Right. There's things that are $10,000. There's things that are $100,000. There's things in the thousands. So general liability is more in the thousands. And for an architect, is that, how is that calculated just for an architect? Usually it's going to be a sales-based exposure for the architect. Gotcha. Yep. Okay, great. Professional liability. This is the big one for architects. Right. You have to have the general, but now you're going into what you're doing. What does professional liability, E&O, malpractice, right. what's that whole right. bag? So, okay, so we have, we have the, the general liability that we just went through, but then 
for an architect, the biggest exposure is really you're, de you're designing an idea. You're providing an idea. You're not actually building that idea, but because you're, de you're giving that idea to people and it's coming on a, in a format that it requires um, a little bit different insurance because you're not actually providing the, the, the product, you're providing the design for the product. So you're not creating the product, which is what a general liability policy really covers. Remember, it's covering, mm -hmm. it's covering the product itself. You're just covering, you're providing, excuse me, the design. And so if something goes wrong with the design and it fails, so let's, the classic example we often use in insurance is the guy who designs the bridge that then collapses. Yep. So you didn't build the bridge, right? Your firm may have, you may have given the, the design for that, but you didn't actually build it. A construction company built it but you're at fault for it because you didn't design it properly. So it collapses. That's going to be your professional liability, the malpractice insurance. You made a mistake. Yep. An error, an, an omission. Error. Exactly. Exactly. All of that. So we need to cover that for an architect. And that's the biggest exposure because we are relying on that architect or engineering. We often combine the two, by the way, it's hard to sometimes separate and a lot of firms combine them as well. We'll often call it architecture and engineering insurance. Okay. What we'll look at. And because we're going to have the design itself, but then we also have the, the engineering to make sure that the design holds up and it can, it can substantiate or hold the weight of a project or whatever it is requiring. If an architecture firm is purely architecture, do you put in structural too or not? And, and the reason why I'm asking this is because let's say it was purely a structural failure, right? Or I remember one, there was an, an opening for stairs that was right on the drawings, but one thing wasn't sized right and then the contractor did something different they sued everyone anyways like they sued the architect they sued the because they're like you should have been on site you should you know they'll just make up reasons <laughs> so um but to stick to the question if it's an architecture firm only are do you see policies that cover the structural for the architectural drawings well, or, or, or no what happens if you're an underwriter for an insurance company you're trying to write an architectural firm it's going to be so hard to split those hairs between the architectural side and engineering. You're actually going to usually have it be one and the same. Okay. So what we're going to do is you're going to get an application if I were say to come to you and say, okay, Alex, you want new insurance. We'll go ahead and set up your architectural insurance. Here's this application. The first thing you're going to see on the application, it's going to probably say architectural and engineering insurance application. It's going to be combined. It's going to be very difficult to separate those out because of the way the real world works in that is something an architectural design error or was it engineering? Yep. It's be hard to split those hairs. Because everyone's working as a group. So right. it's like now I'm just blaming the group. Right. Yeah. So if you're if you're hiring an engineer, we're gonna kind of just assume oh, they're sure. working for you, right? That's kind of gonna be how we we you know look at your insurance. That makes a lot of sense too, because even if you want to say, hey, it's structural only, like, well, who hired a structural firm? Who helped direct and coordinate that? Who who managed how many meetings or what you know like right it's just too hard to separate so we have to put it under one policy makes sense yep yep and then okay so that one I know costs more than the general so is it a, based off of your sales also and is it just like a let's say let's say I'm the whole firm and I'm a hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars that, that's my my sales. For, so general liability is just like a percentage of your sales, whatever that would be. Professional, is it the same? Yeah. So on professional liability, we're going to usually look at just your sales and we're going to want to break it out. We're going to want to have enough details. The basis for the policy um, is going to be what we actually rate on, but they're going to ask more questions. We're going to want to know about your whole firm. So we want to know if you're a firm that does some design build, 
then we're going to want to separate that out from your architectural exposure because, of course, that's different exposure than your architectural exposure. So we're going to base it on your architectural sales and design. That's what we're going to really focus on, the premium for the professional liability. And then it's percentages. We do this much residential. We do this much commercial. We do we do high-rises. Right. Oh, okay. You do high-rises. That's probably a different thing than a single family. Right. So then yeah. on the application itself, we're going to start really breaking it down, getting into the more detailed nuts and bolts of what you do. You know, commercial work. What, do you, what kind of commercial work are you doing? Are you doing um, condos? That's a big issue. Are you doing... Um, tenant finish work, you know, they're all different types of things. Are you doing bridge work? It's obviously going to be mm-hmm. more exposure. So they're going to look at that. An underwriter is going to look at what your exposures are based on the type of work that you do. And we're going to dig into those questions. So the application on an architect and engineering application is going to be very detailed. It's not going to just be a one page thing you finish in 10 minutes. It's going to usually be, you know, three to five pages, sometimes even more if you do some really tough, uh, what's considered tough areas, like yeah. some of the bridge construction work. And then foreshadowing for our listeners, we're going to come back to this because this is going to, this is going to, what you just said is going to circle back in the end. Correct. Um, okay. Anything else for architects do you want to touch on professional liability? You know, um, without going too much into the, into the whole thing, but giving a little bit of a better perspective, it's kind of good to understand how a policy pays. So a professional liability policy is what is called a claims made policy. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but it's important to realize that your exposure on a professional liability is going to always be based on this claims made type of policy. So what that means is that when you start your policy, let's just say we started your policy August 1st for your professional liability, we're going to cover any claim that you have moving forward from that date. That date that we started the policy, if it was your first policy, it's what's called a retroactive date. Nothing's going to be covered before that. So let's say you've been an architectural firm for years, but you just finally decided to buy your first policy for August 1st. Good for you. You listen to this podcast. You're right. You're, you're like, wow, I need to do this. Yeah. It's good to know that. John, you're... light ship insurance. Yeah, yeah we'd, love to, we'd love to talk to you. So um, it's good to know that, that there's not going to be coverage for anything before that inception date or before that retroactive date. Bad habit, we get into saying retro. So if I say that, I mean a retroactive date. So that retroactive date would be August 1st if you never had coverage before. And anything moving from that date forward is going to be covered, assuming you keep your policy in force. It's important to mention this because let's say you designed a building a year ago and it collapses tomorrow. Or let's say it collapses August 10th. There's not going to be coverage for it. You think you you have insurance. Right but it's not going to make that retroactive date requirement. Yeah. So you may have had coverage. You may say it collapses in September. You bought the policy in August. You're not going to have coverage because that retroactive date is not going to cover you. Yeah. So you don't want to wait. You want to get your insurance in place. It's really very important to get that in place. And so that way you have the coverage. It yeah. is different than general liability. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. I'll, I'll touch on that, how that policy is a little bit different. Um, but for a professional liability policy, we want to make that make sure we get it put in place so that we can cover you moving forward. And then you have to continue to keep it in place as well. So that way it's covered. So if you go out of business, that's also something if somebody's thinking about retiring, you retire that policy then also can retire because it is what's called a claims made policy. It means that there's no coverage after the policy ends. So you want to keep that in mind too. It's also a little bit different than a general liability policy. So once you retire, say you've retired January 1st, we can, provide an extension to that policy called a tail to give you coverage after your retirement date. So that way 
if something happens in the future, you're still covered. So it gets kind of complicated. I know that, but it's just good to understand claims yeah. made. It's something to look out for, and it's uh, it's definitely different than a general liability policy because yeah. of that. So I want to get into that, but generally thinking the analogy that for some reason came in my head is birth control isn't going to work on your two-year-old. It's going to prevent the next one, <laughs> but, yep. but not the one that you already had. Um, secondly is let's say you reassess and you're getting a new policy or a different policy. You want to keep it continual because if you have a gap, let's just say you have a gap of two months or six months because you just failed to do it or failed to get the next one. The stuff designed in that period is kind of yeah, Alex, that's at such a good risk. Point. So once you once you have a claims made policy, it's super important that you never let it have any cancels or lapses. Yeah. For one thing, you'll really have a hard time getting anybody to go back to your original retroactive date. So in the example we were using earlier, say August 1st, we started it. And now let's say we're five years from now. And you just got lazy five years from now and just didn't have the policy for six months because yep. you just didn't renew it or you were having a slow period. You're going to have to start all over again with your retroactive date. No insurance company is going to really go back more than 30 days on a retroactive date. So it's yep. really important that once you put the policy in force, you never let it lapse because that retroactive date is so critical because you want to cover your past work. So there's a small buffer just to get your paperwork done, your money in order, possibly, but you want to you want to have it in set, the next one set up before the one expires. There might be a month policy buffer, don't don't bank on it, but obviously don't let it lapse for <laughs> don't let it lapse. It's always important to make sure that that policy stays in force. I mean, as an example, the the huge terrible disaster that happened in the Miami condo um, collapse. Yep. Those things go back. It's so hard even to tell when that is going to be a claim because that thing was built 40 years ago. There was ongoing issues. There's just so much that's going on. That's That's been the classic example of issues in the insurance industry right now of a bad situation on claims made because okay. you're looking at a policy that could go back 30 or 40 years. Some of those issues might have been original design issues yep. and flaws. Okay, here's a great question. What what if your firm, what if it is that scenario and that architect or engineer either went to different firms or started different firms or, or, or switched from John to Bill, you know, like he had you for five years and then for some reason is like, nope, I need Bill. Um, which policy picks that up? That's why that one's going to be such an ugly situation and going to be in the courts for years because it's going to be really hard. It looks like, from what I've understood in that situation, some of the flaws were going all the way back to the original construction. Okay. Some of the plans might not have been followed. So if was, you do switch, and let's say you clearly designed it in one year with your policy and they didn't really change anything, there was just an error, in a more easy scenario, it does go to that policy, not to your current policy. Right. So a lot of times it could go back to that old policy. Now, on the professional liability, what happens is it's a little bit different than general liability is whoever has your coverage then, when there's a claim, is agreeing to pick up your retroactive date from the other policies. Gotcha. So let's say I was with company A for 10 years and then company B. Now that I'm with company B, they're agreeing, as long as they have that retroactive date on the policy, to cover those exposures from before. So even if you did with company A, it's right. now 15 years later, company B, that's who you deal with, that's who does it. Yep. Okay. That's very different. On a, that's, this is specific to a claims made uh, professional malpractice liability policy. That's very different than a general liability policy. So they are very different in this particular area. Okay, let's remember that on the builder side because it's more exactly. important on the builder side than the architect side. Right. Um, no, next question though. Let's say there's an architect out there or engineer, doesn't matter. 
<clears throat> they have all this. They're actually great. They're, they're all set up. They're listening to this and they're doing everything that John says. They're going to retire tomorrow. And their policy is set to retire tomorrow. There's a, the idea, and I think you alluded to that, oh, there's this seven to eight to nine years of construction defects, liability, all this. That architect that retires and is going to get out of it, <clears throat> how long does he have to keep insurance? Does it keep being that heavy one? If he was part of a firm, I know uh, I'll make up a state to make sure it's not the state that this happened in. And it's not the current state we're in, but like I know there's firms in, I'm going to say Alabama, um, it's not Alabama, where it's a firm of, let's say, 50 people. They're, the two principals are the only ones that are stamping. You know what I mean? So that means the amount of work that those two principals are stamping for is massive. So if one retires and that person is just at like a normal salary, that's a lot of risk for one, for, you know, half of a 50 person firm. Right. So, so we want to insure the firm, Alex. Um, that's important because we want to make sure we're covering all that exposures and that it continues on. That's the best thing we can do is if somebody retires and the firm stays on and it stays on as an ongoing concern in the same name, then we can discontinue the policy. If we don't, if you have somebody retiring and they're closing shop or the new entity buying them is going to have a different entity name or a new legal name, then you have to buy what's called a tail policy. And for an architect, that's a pretty really important yeah. thing to make sure you do. And usually we would recommend at least three to five years, you know, if not even longer, depending on the scope of what your history has been. Yep. So let's say you're at a firm and there's multiple architects and stuff like that. The firm has a policy. One person retires. Another doesn't matter. The firm continues. It all goes. You're the leadership of the firm and it either dies or you sell it to Bob. Bob's a key figure in our discussion. <laughs> he has his own insurance company. Now he's buying an architecture firm, but he's going to call it something totally different. That principal should have a tail policy. Correct. If you don't buy that tail policy, any exposure that um, comes up from the past, any potential claims that come up from the past, those are going to be big, big issues for that firm that's selling because there's no coverage when Bob buys it and puts it under his different name. Can, I, can we assume that tail policies are cheaper than what a, a firm is paying? Yeah, so a typical rate on that is, is more expensive than people think because there's a little bit of fear from the underwriting standpoint, from the insurance uh, underwriter standpoint, that what's there, what's hidden, you know, that we don't know about. Are they selling for a reason? Yeah. So the firm uh, policies for those can be pretty expensive. Uh, we often see uh, anywhere from about 50 to 75% for one-year uh, tail of what the original premium was. And then so a three to five year, you could be looking at even 200 to 250% uh, of what a one-year policy would cost. Okay. So if it's a $1,000 policy. Let's uh, say it's a $10,000 $10, policy. Yep. Then we could be looking at, if you want to buy a three-year tail, we could yep. be looking at that being uh, $20,000. If you want a five-year uh, tail. Uh, for the three years. For the, for the full period. And you buy that policy, it's a one-time payment, just paid in full, and then that's done. That's one. Okay. Okay. Good to know. I mean, that's huge for some people. It uh, is. You know, I'm dealing with one right now. Uh, it's a, um, actually, it's another environment, uh, engineering firm, and they're selling uh, at the end of the month here, and uh, they're a little surprised at how expensive it was to buy the tail, but that's because there is you know, quite a bit of exposure that could still be out there. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, before we go to the next one, professional liability, anything else you want to say that about that on the architect side? 
No, I think the, um, the most important thing that I just want to make sure people realize is that on the professional liability, that there, because it is a claims-made policy, that means that the, the claim has a trigger, because we're going to talk about that in a minute on general liability, and that trigger is when the claim is reported. So when the condo collapsed in Miami, the trigger was when the whole thing collapsed. That's the date that becomes the policy that's going to cover it, and then we look at the retroactive date for any flaws that were potentially happening, and you know that, that's a different situation. But the actual claim goes by the trigger date of when the incident happened. Yeah. Okay. It's okay. important. Um, for architects, workers' comp, what's that for? What's the general metric for rate people can kind of think about for costs? Yeah, workers' comp for architects is pretty inexpensive. Um, you've mostly got people uh, usually in-house. That's going to be a very inexpensive rate. Um, not not uh, going to be very much money. We're looking at maybe a quarter to a half a percent of payroll rate. So on $100,000 in payroll, we're just talking about several hundred dollars. We're not talking about something that's very expensive. Um, if you're out in the field a little bit, you might. Sometimes we see architectural firms that will do some surveying as well. There's a surveyor rate. It's funny. I think we just asked you that question. Yeah, and I was like, we policy. don't survey nothing. Yeah, but a lot of architects do. Yep. And that rate is a little bit higher. It's going to be um, it's going to be out in the field. It's going to be more like kind of a salesman surveyor rate. And you're still looking at pretty reasonable rates, you know, anywhere from, oh, half a percent to one percent of the cost of the payroll. Because you've got somebody who's out in the field. Um, yeah. And that, that's why it costs a little more. Why are owners allowed to be exempt? So under uh, most states, they'll allow the owner, if they're at least 10% or more ownership, they'll allow the owner to choose to not be covered because most owners don't feel like they need to be covered. They'll go ahead and take care of their own situation. Um, and remember, workers' comp is covering lost wages and health insurance. So if you're an owner, you have your own health insurance, you're not as concerned about that. Yep. Uh, if you're an owner, lost wages, well, you're kind of getting maybe some payroll, but you're also maybe getting some dividend income or getting income elsewhere. So you're maybe not as worried about that. So a lot of times owners will go ahead and decide to not be covered. Yeah. Basically, you're saying owners do zero work. So if they are out for six months, the rest <laughs> of the firm will do all the work anyways. They, they the wor everyone knows the firm's doing the work anyways. So. All the minions are doing the work. Right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that. But yeah, so uh, no, that's, uh, that, that's kind of how that works. But um, yeah, so the owners um, uh, are not very expensive to insure because usually it's not very expensive code. So yeah. sometimes we see people decide to be included, but a lot of times they decide not to. Gotcha. Okay. Um, that, for me, sums up the architecture side. Does that sum up the architecture side for you? Or I, I'm happy to go as deep as we want to no, go. No, this is very informative. I think it's good. I think one thing to keep in mind on the work comp side, um, and we'll go into this more when we talk about the construction and the builder side, but on the work comp side, I do want to stress that um, it's important to have coverage, even if you think you're just a one-man operation. I know there's going to be some of those people out there. And if you're a one-man operation, it'd be easy to say, I don't need to worry about it. But you want to be careful because if you're involved in hiring somebody in any way, shape, or form, ultimately that, that exposure on workers' comp could come back to you. Yep. So it's always good to make sure that you have your own policy in case somebody ever tries to come against you for something. It's more of an issue for a builder, but it can also be an issue for an architect. Here's the thing, too. A lot of uh, architecture firms are one-man shops, and if they want to own or exempt themselves. But take, for example, you play basketball and you break your leg. Well, wait, probably wouldn't cover that because you're playing basketball. Right. Right. It has to be on the work. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I have a, you can get it. Anyways, you could get a different policy just for like Aflac or, or life or anything like that. Think about it. If you actually are out of work as even as an owner and you don't have other people making money in, in your firm running, you need to think about some sort of insurance. 
for that because you could be out for months. You could be on pain pills, typing emails like a crazy person right. that makes no sense. And your wife's like, please stop. <laughs> a disability policy would be a really good idea. You know, if you're a single yeah. man operation, but even that single man operation, the reason I maybe just going down a little further is that even that single man operation is likely to have projects that come up that they might need to hire somebody out. I would imagine that, you know, often, or I just know from my own history doing this for 30 years, that a lot of times you might have to sub out some of that work. You can't yeah. quite finish all the different things involved. And if you start hiring somebody else and have them do it and they get hurt driving to a client meeting, and they're working mostly for you at that point, even though they're an independent contractor, that's the situation where you want to have that work comp policy because it could be easily construed that they're an employee of yours. They're working yes. for you and you didn't even realize you kind of ended up building that relationship of an employer-employee relationship and may not even realize you did it. Well, that goes back to the state for un unemployment insurance, which the state mandates and, and takes and all that, the, because we've had to deal with this. And what they consider someone working for you um, it, it is fuzzy and I don't want to go too into the details, but it's how much work are they getting from you? You know, like if you stopped, you know, like would their income stop it, if that's true. And, and the weird thing is that they get to decide because like, let's say we have engineers. Okay. Let's, um, say we send this engineer a bunch of work, but if we didn't, if anyone knows anything about construction right now, there is a lack of engineers. So that engineer would not be unemployed. He has a backlog of stuff, but insurance might say the state might say like, no, 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 you need to pay unemployment insurance for, for that person. Um, That's such a good point, Alex. I, I think on that note, it's very easy to get in this mindset that, oh, well, it's a 1099, so I don't have to worry about it. Well, we've actually got to the point in workers comp that we just call them 1099 employees. Well, that <laughs> it's actually mutually exclusive, but because we separate the way taxes are done, don't get that mixed up with the way insurance is done. That's so the key. That's really Taxes really and insurance are different are, animals. Are different animals. So that's really, really important because that 1099 employee means that from a workers' comp standpoint, they're going to be covered. They're going to be, you're going to be responsible for that 1099 employee from a work comp standpoint. Yep. Yep. Okay. Let's jump over to the builder slash contractor side, right? Yep. So the main difference... I would say is if in an architecture, your meat and potatoes is professional liability because you're doing those drawings or those professional services. The contractor side, that's not really happening. Your meat and potatoes are general liability because you're making that widget, that house. Is that the way to think about Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And that's, that's the key is that, you know, you're, you're now implementing what, what the good architect hopefully uh, designed. Yep. You're implementing it. You're not really very involved in the design process. And unless you are involved in the design process, you probably don't even have any professional liability and you probably don't need it. Most um, contractors don't have professional liability, but they need to have general liability. Yep. Um, keep, I'm just day jumping. Testing. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> that's fine if that's in there. I just wanted to make sure because I'd hate if this conversation was not go, uh, recording the way it should. So it, it did pick it up. Perfect. Okay. So general liability is huge for builders. Um, I think you kind of went over it, but if, in, in any more detail, it, it covers it. Hey, it collapses. Right. So hey, just can I whatever. jump in? Yeah. Yep. yeah. 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 So just to jump in again, super quick summary. If it, while, while the job is being built, that's going to be that premises liability and that's going to be covering. So somebody falls and gets hurt or somebody gets hurt on the job. 
um, that's going to be the premises liability. But what we really want to cover and what, what's going to drive the rate for a contractor, be it the general contractor or a trade contractor, it's going to be the exposure they have on the products and completed operations side. So what under Colorado law, and most states have something similar, but under Colorado law, we have what's called the statute of repose. So you may say, a contractor may say, I'm only going to give a one-year warranty or two-year warranty, but under Colorado law, it's a six-year warranty for construction defect. There's then also two-year statute of limitations, and that statute of limitations is going to really make it so that the policy has to provide coverage for eight years total. Mm -hmm. So that's Colorado law. It's all done on an occurrence basis. So this is the big difference between the professional liability and a general liability policy is everything here is going to be looked at on an occurrence basis. What was the, the, on the professional liability called? That's a claims made. Yep. So that's a claims made. So on, pardon me, on general liability, it's an occurrence basis. And what that means is it's going to be while, or excuse me, it's going to be when the project was built. That's going to be what we really look at. Okay. Get a little fuzzy, but for the most part, 95% 95% of the situations, we're going to look at when something was built. So if I built something in 2010 and it now <laughs> collapses, well, let's not go that far back. If I built something in 2020 yep. and it collapses because I didn't build it properly, then there's going to be coverage for that. Going back to the policy that was in force during 2020. Okay. Okay. And, and then by built, because sometimes, does that mean completed or started? That's sometimes where it gets a little confusing. That's a good point, Alex. That's where we have to be a little bit careful, especially if you change carriers, it can get a little messy. But yes, it's going to be usually when the work was done. Sometimes it can be over a period of time that can get a little bit confusing. So sometimes we will see um, more than one policy have to respond. Let's say if something started in December of uh, 2009, finished in later in 2010, whatever the year is, yeah. we're going to look at those different dates. And those are going to be the dates that we get used. Okay. Okay. So it is, it's going to be based on when the, when the, um, um, construction was done, that's going to be the date of really the, the kind of the trigger of the policy under an occurrence general liability policy. Yeah. How is that fee based off of how much it costs? Is it how much the, so let's say I'm a general contractor. Let's say I'm going to make $10 million worth of buildings. Um, obviously I'm only, my firm is only going to do some of the work. A lot of subs are going to do the other work. Does that come into play? Right. So the general the general liability policies rating basis is usually going to be three things, and it's going to be a little bit different depending on how the carrier does it. Each carrier does this a little bit differently. We're going to always look at sales. That could be the rating basis exclusively, but we could also be looking at subcontractor costs. Oftentimes, it's a combination of both. We want to see what your sales are. Say they're ten million. Maybe you sub out a million. Maybe you self perform a million. So we might even rate also on your um, self-performing, which then that would actually be based off of your payroll for in the field. We're always just really concerned about the field payroll. We're not really worried about the architect. We're not really worried about your clerical guys. Those are, those are exposures that are just so minimal that we're not too worried about them. We're going to base that payroll on the field payroll. So those are the three things that are going to always be looked at on a general policy, general liability policy for a um, contractor. It's going to be sales, subcontractor costs, and payroll. And subcontractor costs and payroll should add up to sales, or is there another gap that we're missing? Well, you know, you're going to have your margin in there. So that's, yeah. that's going to be one of the reasons the insurance company is going to look at that. If they see a million or $10 million in, in sales and only a million in sub costs and only you self-performing $500,000, 
that's awful lot of margin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's going to be a red flag for them. That's why they're going to always want to know, you know, what your what your uh, exposures are for those three areas. The actual policy might be based on just subcontractor costs and payroll, or it might just be on sales. But they're going to always want to know what those all three are. And then uh, we're going to have some margin in there too. And, and the assumption in the industry tends to be anywhere between 20 and 30% yeah. for margin. But um, 20 to 30%. Here's what's kind of weird in my head. So let's just, I'm going to use very simple numbers. Uh, $100,000 in sub costs. Um, and then $100,000 in, uh, in payroll, right? Because pay, mm-hmm. payroll is one of them. But a lot of times in payroll, payroll is half of what you charge because I own a bill. I rent a building. I rent, you know, equipment. Um, there's, there's other things involved. There's, there's profit in there. And then there's, there's a hundred thousand dollars in material. So let's just say, and we could use millions. So that's 3 million. Um, but your payroll plus your subs could only be two thirds of that. Yeah, it gets really complicated. So we, these are just general guidelines. But yeah, yeah. We're, if you had uh, 10 million in sales and 5 million in subs and payroll, nobody's going to bat an eye at that. That's going to seem within reason. But if you've yeah. got numbers that are not gotcha. you know, in gotcha. line, that's what they're going to look at. But we usually assume margin, and I mean by margin, above those fixed costs. You know, yep. That's more for profit and overhead. Um, it's, it's, it's just a general guideline. It just They're going to want to make sure they see all those numbers to make sure they kind of add up to a certain extent. Yeah. They're going to have metrics behind the scenes that they're going to run to kind of know whether or not they think you're running all your numbers properly. Yep. Um, I've been doing this a long time and, I, and I've had this conversation, believe it or not, with people and they say, well, which books do you want me to see? My taxes that I send to the IRS, the taxes that I send to my accountant or the taxes that I showed my divorce attorney? <laughs> my, you know, it's like, okay, which, which one is it? They should all be the same books, right? But that's what they'll, they'll do sometimes. Well, so. but what's hilarious about that is like, um, I, I, I haven't looked into this, but <clears throat> Amazon paid $0 in federal taxes because the way that they reinvested and stuff like that, so that's right. what they have. But somehow, every time they have their quarterly report, they report to their shareholders, we made $10 billion. Yeah. So you made $10 billion times four, you made $40 billion, but <laughs> those numbers that you give to Wall Street somehow do not match what you told the federal government. Yeah, I, so I, did you make $40 billion or did you make $0? Exactly. By taxes, <laughs> I meant to say books. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. Which, which set of books do you show? And it's like, wow, those, those sets of books should be the same, you would think. Yeah. But they sure are not. So that's what's kind of scary sometimes. It's crazy. It's yep. crazy. Um, and, and the reason why I, I kind of went into those weeds is because when we first started talking, not first, but, you know, redoing stuff, I just remember those numbers and then you finally ask for payroll. And I was like, okay, pay, because uh, sometimes their calculations is based off of payroll. And if I put in all my material costs in that and all my, you know, like overhead, you know, for example, let's say payroll is being charged out at $50 an hour, but they only make 25, right? Well, that's 50% right there that I, if I would have included that extra $25 per hour, I'd be charged for more than I'm actually paying people. So like, it, it's good to know payroll is separate from this. It's right. A, yeah. And it's always, remember, it's always going to be the payroll that's in the field. That's going to be the, the part they look at for your own exposure. And then on sub costs, it's worth noting something you just kind of touched on there. Is it supposed to include labor and material? But I've even dealt with, over the years, auditors that don't even realize that. And, of course, what like most of the uh, contractors like to do is only present 
what the sub costs are based on pure labor, yep. not materials because they don't want that extra hit. But technically, it's supposed to be labor and materials. Okay, good to know. Perfect. Uh, general liability, does that sum, sum that up? Yeah, so the good good thing on, on general liability is it gives you a lot of coverage for a long time. That That's basically almost eight years of coverage, um, and it's something that you don't want to do without. That's for sure. Yep. Um, workers' comp. Workers' comp. Um, actually, let me can we can we touch base on one of the things that comes up sometimes on yeah. construction, um, and we'll we'll uh, we'll talk briefly about what's called a wrap project. And, and a wrap project is kind of uh, something that gets a little more interesting, and, and we'll we'll wrap project will make a little more sense. Um, Slash umbrella. Uh, well, no, a wrap project is going to cover the whole project. And so what happens in Colorado, we're going to talk about exclusions later on, but it's yeah. kind of, it's tough. Do you talk about a wrap project now or do you talk about it after you've talked about exclusions? But a reason I like to talk about a wrap project now is it's another form of general liability insurance. And it's an insurance policy that's called an OSIP. It's called an Owner's Contractor's Insurance Program, or it's called a CSIP, which is a um, Contractor's Insurance Program. And so we, we usually see a, a wrap, and we just call it a wrap for short. And that's a project policy that's going to cover all the insurance exposures for a project. So if you're building, say, condominiums or townhomes, especially multi-units, we're having a hard time getting coverage today, especially in Colorado, but other states are having this as well. So what we do there is we insure the whole project. So instead of having a policy be covered by the general contractor, the architect, and all the subs, we have one policy that responds for the whole thing. Yeah. And so that's, I think, a really, uh, I won't go too much into it, but it's really nice to know that that's an option. So if you are doing some sort of multi-unit development, we are, at Light Chip Insurance, we write wrap policies as well, and that provides coverage for the whole project and takes care of all eight years of uh, insurance exposure on that policy. And, and normally, is it typical, because this is the way I've seen it, the developer would pay for that? Correct. And that's why it's, it's usually under an OSIP. That's where the owner pays for it, yep. owner's contractor's insurance program. That's usually the ones we see the most. And so usually the owner or the developer pays for that policy, and they're the ones buying it. So that way, they're covered. And uh, I thought I had two questions about that, but maybe it got eliminated to one. So let's say that happens. It's a special project. It's a condo project. So then now when, when and oh, I was going to say the reason why that comes up a lot too is getting loans for that. A lot of banks or private people won't loan unless you have a wrap. So the developer has X amount of cash, has 25% of the project. He needs 75%. They said, hey, yeah, I'll loan you $4 million. Got to have a wrap. Right. And that that's where I've seen it yep, literally so that, kind of be mandated by the money men. Well, so the banks want to see it and they want to know that there's going to be coverage because their money is on the line, right? So yep. they want to make sure that there's proper insurance for that project. And what's nice about it is it gives a single line of defense. So rather than having to go after all these different insurance companies that are involved, the, the general contractors, the trade contractors, those get really complicated, those kind of claims. Yep. But here we have one line of defense. The insurance company picks it up. There's no questions on who's on it because it's, it's insured through that wrap. What's also interesting about that, without going into too much detail, is that your contractors that work on that actually don't get charged their insurance premiums on wrap projects. Because the wrap is insuring that project, they can actually save some on their insurance. They don't have to actually ch get charged by their insurance company for any work they do on that particular project. And so that's a good thing. It helps to, it's important that if you do a wrap that you make sure that your subcontractors are aware of this so that way they're not being charged. And then they sometimes 
some of the companies, what they ha will do for a wrap is go ahead and say, okay, we want to know what your rate is, and we're going to have a little bit of a chargeback on your um, charges that you provide. I'm trying to think of the best way to word this. So what the sub may bid something at $100,000. So their insurance costs are usually 2%. Maybe they can contribute 2% back because yeah. they're going to have that savings. It gets a little complicated, right. getting a little too much in the, uh, in the weeds here. But it's just good to know that, that there are some savings. And a lot of times, the overall cost of a wrap policy, when that's taken into consideration that all the subs don't have to pay, the overall cost of a wrap can be very reasonable. So, for example, let's say uh, I'm a contractor. Let's say I'm going to do three projects this year. All of them are going to be 10 units. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Three projects. One of them I know for sure is a wrap. So then when I'm either renewing or at the audit, I can say, hey, this project that was a million dollars worth of, of me out of my three projects, that gets excluded from my insurance. Right. Basically a third of my work that year in this scenario. I don't have to pay as a contractor because the developer's taking that on. So when the bullet comes, it just all it sees is the wrap. All legally it can do is attack the wrap. Right. That's how it works. That's a good example. I have a, a large HVAC contractor, and 90% um, of their work that they do, they're, they do $6 million in sales. 90% of the work that they do is all under wraps. So their premium is really, really inexpensive. Even though they do all this work, their general liability premium is minimal because most of that is covered by the wraps. They're, I'm only picking up the 10% they do on remodel work and stuff like that. Gotcha. So, gotcha. That was a good point. Um, the one other thing on a wrap to, to mention right now would be that we're going to talk about exclusions in a little bit. And exclusions are really, really severe on larger um, commercial, excuse me, larger residential projects. So we're seeing a lot of exclusions on the insurance marketplace for residential projects. And so one of the reasons that your lender wants to see that if you're doing a big project is they want to see insurance that they know is going to really be in place. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times on general liability policies, we're seeing exclusions for new residential new residential construction. And so that new residential construction is a real problem for a lot of um, multi-unit type of uh, developments. So that's that exclusion probably doesn't exist on the architect side because... Is that true? Or do you see that on the architect side too? No, that's, that's different. The professional liability is usually not going to have that exclusion. Yep. But the wrap is really meant to cover the, the, the general liability portion of it, the process and completed operations gotcha. exposure. That's what the wrap is really there for. Is a wrap the same as umbrella insurance? Nope. So the umbrella is different. So if you have a general liability policy, those standard limits I think I may have alluded to earlier are a million dollars per occurrence, yep. two million aggregate, okay? That's um, just the general liability base. An umbrella policy is going to then provide coverage above and over that, and it's going to provide coverage of whatever limit you choose, starting at a million dollars above and beyond. And it's going to cover over the general liability policy. Also, we'll cover over any commercial auto policy and even the workers' comp as well, if there's ever a situation where that comes into play. Okay. So a wrap is it's basically wrapped up in a safety net. An umbrella is... Um, against additional like it exceeded right this is so an umbrella is going to sit on top and it's going to have the underlying coverages below it that's why we call it an umbrella it, it covers those other areas of exposure okay but it's different it's just higher limits of coverage a wrap is covering a specific project yep awesome okay now workers comp okay <laughs> workers comp is it's just more expensive than on the architect side because they're actually doing the work 
You got it. So you know you've got you've got all those people swinging hammers, and that's expensive. Yeah. Um, you know, carpentry construction, particularly on um, residential construction, is going to be anywhere from eight to ten, even eleven percent, depending of uh, payroll costs. Yeah. So it's expensive. Um, it's going to be less expensive in certain um, areas. We always are looking for workers' comp. We're looking at what the person does, and then we put that into a class code. Um, to then establish what the rate is going to be. Right. Are they painters, electricians, general contractors, framers, uh, general carpenters, framers, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, actually, I want to rewind. <laughs> okay. Since you said it's, it's getting hard, there's exclusions for single family or for residential construction. Let's say a developer is doing uh, 50 unit development of single family houses. They could be custom. It doesn't matter. Or it could just be track homes like, you know, normal neighborhoods. Are those developers now doing a wrap on like all of that or are they making sure that their whoever their contractor is doesn't have that exception and is is that yeah yeah it really comes down to mostly where we're seeing the requirement for wraps is the new residential um, area so tract in, housing, in a big in development a tract, tract housing is usually going to be the big issue so uh, insurance policies are going to all be different unfortunately there's no exact perfect answer here. But a lot of the general liability insurance policies that contractors get are going to have tract exclusions. Generally speaking, assume it's going to be more than 10 houses being built. So if you're doing some custom home builders, a custom home building, excuse me, that's going to probably not be a problem for most trade contractors. So the trade contractors buying insurance, they want to make sure that they don't have a residential exclusion for new custom homes. If you get a exclusion that's for 10 or more, that's going to be a tract home exclusion. And that's going to be very common. Condominiums, also very common. But does that mean 10 custom? Like, could I do 10 customs just all over the place? Because track is in the na- same neighborhood. You kind of just... Right. Usually what they do is because it, it gets so confusing and we don't want to get caught up in too much of a fine definition. They'll just say no more than 10 housing units total. But everybody's got a slightly different tract exclusion on their policy. Okay. Every insurance company does. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. We sometimes see hard new residential exclusions. Those you have to look out for. So if you're doing the custom home, that I know you guys are doing a nice custom home. You want to make sure that there's no new residential hard exclusion. Yep. Where we see that sometimes. It all depends on uh, your trades. We want to make sure that they don't have a hard exclusion for new residential. Yep. Just depends. And, and I would say that all of this information is why it's important as an architect or a builder. If you can find an insurance person that they specialize in this. Then they know to look for this. They know what's overlapping, what's not overlapping, where your gaps are, what's the exclusions are. You might have paid a whole bunch of insurance, and for <laughs> and if it had that exclusion, and you realize two, three years later, holy cow, all the stuff that we are doing is now ex- was always excluded. Right, that could be heartbreaking. Yeah, you've got to really look at that. You want to know what. You know, the insurance certificate that you get from your trade contractors, you want to make sure it's worth the paper it's printed on. If yep. you're doing residential work, new residential work, you need to make sure that there's not an exclusion for new. Yep. And I've seen it I've, over the years. I've seen insurance agents you know, even know what the insured is doing and sometimes just move forward because they aren't connecting the dots. Yeah. Okay. Um, want to go to builder's risk? Sure. So, um, well, actually, can we can we stay yeah. focused for just one more minute on yeah. exclusions? So I think that's just good. I think we kind of hit on that. We kind of indirectly just started talking about exclusions that come on a policy that a general contractor will have or a trade contractor will have. What you also want to look out for 
is making sure that you have um, no exclusions on certain areas. And the other one that we see is earth movement. So we want to be careful with the earth movement exclusion, and that's particularly important. So if you're doing a design build project and you are overseeing that from a GC kind of standpoint, you obviously now know that you need to make sure that there's no new residential exclusion if it's a custom home. Um, if it's a trap project, you're probably having to put that on a wrap policy um, because there's going to be an exclusion for anything 10 units or more or for condominiums. But then if they're doing, let's say it's your uh, contractor that's doing con concrete work or foundation work, you want to look out for any kind of earth movement exclusion. So that's a standard exclusion. You don't care if it's on the painter's policy. You don't even care if it's on the roofer's policy. But you want to make sure your foundation guy has uh, does not have that exclusion. And we've seen that a lot. So your concrete guys, your foundation guys, that's really, really important. Um, other exclusions to look out for are not a big deal. But you still want to think about it. Would be asbestos, not much of an issue anymore. But the one that still comes up is EFIS. So EFIS uh, insulation still being done on some custom homes, still being done through various stucco projects. And so we see that sometimes come up on uh, custom homes as well. And it's a very standard exclusion. So um, those are the ones I think that are probably the most common and uh, to look out for. So GCs tend generally sub out foundations, but some GCs will rent a Bobcat, do final grading, whatever. Is earth moving earthwork normally excluded on gcs and should they look for that because does skin a bobcat and moving some dirt around count you want to look out for that for sure it's it's often something that we'll see excluded or we'll see limitations on so um you know you want to make sure you have your full mil million dollar limits i know one of the companies we like to work with um they were getting hit with too many claims and they put a fifty thousand limitation on it it's not a lot of coverage you got a foundation issue so yep. that is something as a gc you want to look out for Yep. Okay. Those limits, are those per year? So it's per accident. So when we talk about general liability, we usually are looking at per occurrence. So it's per incident that happens. But it, so let's say it's a million per occurrence, but it was 2 million. Normally that's the numbers I see. 2 yeah, million so in it. What does that 2 million that, mean? That second, let's say you have uh, had a really bad year. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you, you had a, a $900,000 claim and then lo and behold, three months later, you get another one. Yeah. That's where the aggregate comes into play. If they had another $500,000 claim, you'd still be okay. You have up to a million dollars in coverage for any one incident, any one claim. Yep. And then you have up to $2 million for the whole policy year. That, that's where I was getting. Yep. So. The aggregates for the policy year. Gotcha. So that's where those track homes, I, I can see the exclusion now because if it was the same problem in all of them and you get hit, you know, $400,000 times 10, you're at 4 million right there. Well, yeah. And if there's a hard exclusion, there's no coverage, but if there, yeah, that's where you can go through your limits pretty quick. Yeah. So that's what you have to think about too, is that's why you'll start seeing umbrella requirements. So if you're doing a big project, yeah. let's, uh, let's just say even a big custom home and you, you've got that big custom home or a commercial work and there's, um, no umbrella policy, you can see how somebody can go through their limits pretty quick. Yeah. Million dollars sounds like a lot of money and it mm -hmm. is, but you get a big claim, it goes pretty quickly. Yep. Yeah. Oh, and uh, the lawyers are going to try to take a third of that. So, you know, that just ups the price. And they overestimate what it takes anyway. So right. it, it, don't think it's true costs. Right. <laughs> Meaning you're losing out on that money. Someone else is, is probably 
building it and and they're getting the money and it's not going to cost as much as those uh lawyers said it was right right you can burn through uh expenses really really quickly um not too much of a big deal on an occurrence policy like a general liability policy brief tangent this is something to consider when you are buying what's called the uh professional liability and the claims made policy um, a lot of those policies will actually have the defense costs within the policy limit not outside um, it's just another thing to keep in mind. So what that means is if you've got a million dollar claims mm. made and malpractice policy, you're, you can rack up a lot of expenses very, very quickly on the uh, defense costs. Those can de- delete or not delete, but uh, go against. Go against. Thank you. They can go against the actual limits. Well, on bigger things, you could have a defense cost of 250K, you know, and that's that that's a lot of your million right there <laughs> right so that usually doesn't come into play on the occurrence policy but that's a big big issue on the professional malpractice area yep um okay now builders risk yep builders risk sounds good let's go okay who gets builders risk what is it for how much does it cost so i've got a gonna build a custom home and um, that custom home needs to have insurance for while it's being built. So now we're talking about property coverages. So we're not talking about general liability here, just the property while it's being built. So we've got this raw piece of land that we're going to put a million dollar house on. We need to insure that house for a million dollars. Now, who decides to buy that policy really kind of goes back to the developer. Usually it's going to be the developer or the owner who's going to usually buy that policy. But because they're not usually insurance savvy, believe it or not, most contractors or Architects are more insurance savvy than the than the builder is. Not after this podcast. <laughs> exactly, um, they're going to usually be the ones that help to get the policy. So most of the times, I'm buying, I'm providing a builder's risk policy based on the request from the construction company, and it could be um, a GC. It could be, um, you know, it's almost always going to just be the GC, I guess. Um, yeah. It could be the architect as well. Um, but the GC architect's going to come to me and say, Hey, let's, let's get a builder's risk policy. We're going to put that builder's risk policy usually in two names. We're usually going to have that name be the actual owner. So, you know, Bob Smith, he's going to own the home. Um, whatever developer is going to be, that's going to be the name we put it in. And then we're going to also put additional insured for the, um, construction company as well. So that way there's just better protection for the construction company. So if something's being built and there hasn't been a draw on it, we can go against against the builder's risk policy um, on behalf of the construction company as well. So what does that really mean? That's a little confusing. Let's say we were halfway through building a million dollar house. There's a $500,000 uh, of work that's been completed, okay? And say 400,000 has been paid out by the bank or by the owner. That $400,000 that's all now been destroyed in a fire because we have this claim that say that's just happened. That $400,000 will pay out to the owner and then the hundred thousand dollars that still hadn't been paid out on the draw would go to the construction company so that's the five hundred thousand dollar payout on say a whole loss at that particular and which insurance paid that that's going to be the builder's risk policy so if there was a fire i'm just using that as an example because basically the general liability sort of kicks in afterwards yeah so the general liability is only going to kick in if somebody's at fault but if there's something that happens that's not related to liability that's related to the property exposures okay so we're seeing that here's the question and this will probably clarify it you're halfway through two scenarios happen the wind destroys it just a tornado comes whatever destroys it or uh there's electrical fire 
or the structural engineer drops a beam right through your whole building <laughs> for whatever reason. So it's either an error by someone or the wind. The wind is builder's risk. The air is either the contractor's general or going down to those subs general. Is that right? So there, there's there's going to be different things. The property coverages that are um, going to be provided usually are going to be for fire, theft, vandalism. There could even be something for the situation you described, where a, a contractor you know creates an error and, and destroys part of it. That might be more paid out under general liability. But we're looking usually more at the property exposures, which are going to be the fire, theft, vandalism. Yeah. Um, might get a little bit more complicated if there's a, a general liability situation that causes damage. Um, that's a, kind of a, I think that'd be a whole different discussion that we should probably get into right now. Yeah. But but wouldn't that, wouldn't that let's say, uh, I don't know, a beam drops through or something, um, or the electrical catches fire somehow. It, then aren't we in the realm of that's either the contractor's insurance or the subs insurance well so let's just use the beam situation if the beam falls it could be paid out under the builder's risk for the damage and then the builder's risk insurance company it's going to be different is going to possibly subrogate that claim against whoever was at fault is how it could be played paid out or it could just go straight to the general liability coverage of whoever was at fault those get a little bit more complicated because we have two different insurance policies that probably need to respond okay okay Gotcha. Um, I think we've covered most of the different types of insurance. I'll add just a little bit more on um, on builder's risk because what also comes into play is if, um, let's say you're uh, at, a, at a site, a job site, we also want to look at what's uh, called inland marine. Insurances are a little quick little side story. Insurance is not the most creative industry. So yep. inland marine, people always ask me, what does that mean? So I just like to give my quick story about Inland Marine, really going back to Ocean Marine. So Ocean Marine was the old insurance. One of the first insurance policies that we had was if we were going to lose a ship at sea, what do we do? We better cover that ship. And that's what really helped to start insurance. Insurance started with Ocean Marine and fire insurance. Well, so we insured a ship and we called it Ocean Marine. Made sense, right? Well, insurance people aren't that creative. When we have it on land, we couldn't figure out what to call it. So we call it Inland Marine. Has nothing to do with the water. That's hilarious. That's what we call it. Well, so. who else? You want to you know, know who else is not creative? So. The train industry. Like <laughs> we are, we are on a on a train. Anyways, the the signals that they have go back to the British. It's the same thing. You know, when they honk their horns, it's basically signaling that this is the Queen's train. None of these trains are the Queen's trains. It's just saying I have the right of way. The width goes back to the Romans. It's like you guys did not reinvent anything. You just <laughs> yeah. So it's 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 a good it's a yeah it's a it's a it's good to make sure you have a have your uh, policies in force. It's hopefully not uh, going to give you a warning sign. Uh, yeah. But uh, hopefully a good insurance agent is going to tell you to make sure that you have your inland marine coverage as well. And so uh, that inland marine is going to make sure it covers your equipment, different things at the job site, and it could even cover. Um, some installation uh, exposure that you might have as well, in addition to the builder's risk policy. So we will sometimes see what's called an installation floater. And so if you're insuring um, your product, um, whatever's been installed until it's been paid out, um, there will not be coverage for it um, under the builder's risk policy. As a trade contractor, you then need to make sure you have an installation floater. So I mentioned this because I know sometimes uh, uh, architects, engineers get involved in doing some of the work if you're self-performing and you're not listed as a named insured on the policy, that builder's risk policy, you have what's called an installation exposure 
uh, and that's something to keep in mind. So we had a claim a few years back where a plumber in a condo building had installed $100,000 worth of product. He wasn't named on the policy. He couldn't get coverage when there was a fire, and he ended up having, I think it was about a $50,000 claim because he had not been paid yet. So installation floaters kind of go hand in hand with builder's risk, but there's a difference. It's really for that specific trade usually that has the exposure till they've been paid. Okay, this is almost a great segue. <laughs> name, because you said named on the insurance, right? Right. So I'm a general contractor and we basically came up together I'm, we're going to have a bunch of subs and I need information from those subs to be, to make sure everything is uh, covered and also for tax reasons. Right. And a lot of things that, that, and maybe you can say this better is uh, what, okay. Because we're, we're asked this too, but let's say I'm the general contractor and asking a sub, please provide your certificate of insurance for general liability slash workers comp um, and ensure that the certificate has the following on them. So I'm laying out a scenario where I've awarded a sub this job. And then I say, hey, happy that you're on, on this project. The first thing that I didn't mention, please see the subcontractor agreement and sign it. Second, provide this insurance, uh, certificate of insurance. Is, is that connecting to, that's just me making sure that they have their insurance. Mm -hmm. Correct. Right. Right. Um, and then it's, you want to make sure you're named as additionally insured for ongoing and completed operations on a primary and non contributional basis. All right. There's oh, a, like, there it is. That's a, that's a big language, right? Okay. So why do we do that? You're, what's happening? You're, yeah. What's happening here? Let's explain that a little bit. So you're a general contractor. You want to make sure your subs always, 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 always make sure you have a subcontractor agreement with your subs. Yep. You should be able to get this easily from your insurance company. Um, it should be able to, you know, from their insurance company. Um, they should, well, you, you know, you as a general contractor want to make sure your subcontractor agreement is a good one. You should be able to get right. that from your insurance company yep. that has a hold harmless agreement and it has a requirement that they name you as primary non-contributory language on their insurance certificate, which you were just saying, it's a mouthful. Um, the reason for that, like, well, what does this all mean? You want to make sure that they're providing you protection for the work that they do. So if they make a mistake, you don't want it to go against your insurance. You want it to be something that you can then have your insurance company or yourself subrogate against and go against the re responsible party. So if somebody, uh, say of the plumber situation, doesn't install something properly and there's a leaky um, faucet that causes damage because he pipe bursts, you want to make sure that they have coverage for that. They, then you also want to make sure that they're providing you with insurance certificate showing that you are covered. Yep. Okay. So the way to do that though is through certain uh, uh, contractual obligations through the subcontractor agreement and then it's actually just shown, as long as the subcontractor agreement's there, it's actually just shown through the certificate of insurance. And that certificate needs to show additional insured status, so that way you're getting their coverage if there is a claim. 
But we also, and this is the key point, want to make sure it shows additional insured status for product and completed operations. Mm -hmm. And that's really important because what happens a lot is that they'll be um, providing additional insured certificates just for the premises exposure. So just while they're there, there's coverage for you. But what you really want is the coverage for when the job is done. So that way you have that recourse. And so the insurance certificate needs to show the products and completed operations on there as well under the additional insured endorsement part of the policy. We had a scenario that all of our listeners know of. It was uh, burst plumbing, and but this policy had a, a wrap. But this was during construction. So in, in this, uh, and the plumber's insurance paid for it and it all went fine. <clears throat> Is a way to think about it, if, if you have a wrap, if you have a wrap, is that more after the fact or during it? Because their insurance still paid for it. Do you get what I'm, I'm saying? So then if they didn't pay for this project because there was a wrap, but then there was an error. Well, sometimes claims get paid that shouldn't have been paid. <laughs> and that, that was probably one of them. I remember that situation. And um, it, it probably shouldn't have been paid if, if everything was done exactly to the letter of the law. Uh, the plumber's insurance should have probably said, hey, this is a wrap project we're not going to cover it. And then it should have gone against the wrap policy. That's probably how that should have happened. Yep. But let's just say that happened on a custom home without a wrap, then that would have been the plumber's responsibility legitimately because of the way your subcontractor agreement should have worked out. So, yep. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, because here's my question. If you have a wrap project, are you getting all this? You don't need to get that additional. You don't need to do step two. <laughs> Yeah, so if you're if you're on a wrap project, you're going to have a lot of requirements that the wrap insurance company is going to require. They're going to still want to make sure you're using reputable people, but the actual insurance claim itself in that situation would then normally be covered under the wrap policy. Gotcha. Okay. Um what what does B mean? And you can read that since this is your lingo. That's on here. So a waiver of subrogation for general liability and for workers' comp. Um, a lot of times there's situations where fault isn't always that clear. You know, you, you may have installed, let's say you're, a, you're um, a plumber. Actually, let's use a live example I have. I have a plumber that installed um, a faucet that he thought didn't quite look right. But the GC told him just to go ahead and install it anyways. Mm. Well, as a good plumber, he should have said, this valve just doesn't look right. Sure enough, three months later, the valve failed. Not surprised he wasn't even surprised he said well i told the guy it wasn't going to work but because he had a subcontractor agreement the plumber was 100 percent responsible and that was because the subcontractor agreement is going to want to have that hold harmless and primary non-contributory language and that's being shown on the certificate of insurance with a waiver of subrogation so that means even though the plumber may not have been completely at fault he could had to take the full responsibility even though the GC should have been partially at fault. So that waiver of subrogation means we're not going to go after you, even though you, I just did what I t was told. I was partially at fault. I should have probably not installed that faulty part. That's why you're going to want to have that. It gives you protection as the general contractor to have a waiver of subrogation. Gotcha. We're going to also see that um, for a work comp standpoint. We often like to see that. So let's just say you gave them uh, the construction project some scaffolding, and it wasn't good scaffolding, and it fell. They can't subrogate you. Let's say the painter who falls can't subrogate against you on his worker's comp. They just have to pay the claim, even though you were partially at fault because you provided some the faulty and bad scaffolding. Gotcha. Okay. Crazy. Uh, 
we also have them attach a W-9. There's a independent contractor form, but let's not get into this because I feel like we've been rolling for a while and it's all been good. And I want to make sure I cover the last part. <clears throat> so there is typically an audit that happens. And does this, I feel like this audit happens both on the architecture side and the builder's side. Um, and the two notes that I have here is, okay, if you're going to have an audit and let's, should architects or, or contractors actually both, because I think I've seen it when I was filling out both, <clears throat> should we be coding our, our billing projects? So we say, oh, this, this building was, we have this much in, um, condo work, this much in TI work, this much in bridge work. Because does it come back and they want to see that to see if it matches? And then the same thing too with the payroll on the builder's side. So, hey, it looks like our guys did 80% of just uh, carpentry stuff. Or they did 50% carpentry and then 20% painting. And then, you know, how detailed... Well, you know, it's funny. Earlier, we talked about having two sets of books or yeah. three sets of books, right? You know, the one guy who had one for the uh, IRS, one for um, uh, his ex-wife and one for his, uh, you know, like just regular books. <laughs> yep. Well, in this case, we do want to have two books and we want to kind of divide our books into two different areas, general liability and workers comp when it comes to audits, because they are they just don't always blend that well together. So for the for the audit, let's explain what we're doing and then the why and the what. So what we're doing on the general liability I'll talk about first is we're, we're wanting to go back and see what your real exposures were. So you told me, Alex, that you were going to do a million dollars in sales. Did you really do that? So we want to verify that. You told me that you were going to do $250,000 in subcontractor sauce costs. Excuse me. Did you really do that? And what was your actual payroll in the field from a general liability standpoint? So we need to go back and be able to verify those things. Your policy when it's being presented and when it's provided is going to explain exactly what the rating basis of the policy is so that you should be prepared for that information at audit time. So they're going to want to verify that with your books. And then they're also going to sometimes take it a step further and say, okay, you told me who had all these subs. We did also, we also did make the assumption that they were insured subs. And they're going to want to see those certificates of insurance. That's going to be really, really important. So that's why we are collecting them with that email right when we awarded it. Right. And you can even state, like, we cannot pay you. We cannot send out a check, your first deposit, until you give us this stuff. Any of the large GCs today will never pay you without those you know, I's being dotted and those T's being crossed. They want everything there because they're, they won't release payment until that's done. Yep. So, yeah, you've got to have that certificate of insurance showing that your subs are properly insured because your insurance company is providing you insurance, assuming that's the basis. Makes sense, right? I mean, they know that if you're a general contractor, you're doing a design build project, that the exposure they have is going to be, say, maybe $10 million. But they know if you've got insured subs with the proper um, uh, subcontractor agreement and different things in force, that their exposure is a lot less. Yep. But if you start having uninsured subs, they start not knowing what their exposure is. There's nothing insurance companies hate more than not knowing what they're insuring. The audit um, on that is going to require all that documentation. For the general liability, that's going to be those things that they look for. Any other questions on the general liability side of an audit? No. Well, let's summarize. So in your construction projects, in your folders, 
you should almost have a, a folder for your general liability with all your certificates in it. Absolutely. And then let's say you do multiple projects. You can go into those multiple folders, get all the general liabilities. They'll all be there. Group them all together. Okay. I have all this. That was part one of it. Part two was just, Hey, your money, your books, how much did you write? Is that the second part? Yeah. They're going to yeah. want to see your financial statements. That's yeah. really common for an insurance company to say, okay, so show me your, your P and L your profit and loss. Show me your balance sheet. I want to see that. And then I might even want to see your, your, your sales, um, uh, charter of accounts or whatever. You know, they're going to ask for that information really commonly. Okay. Okay. Yep. So general liability is pretty straightforward, but workers comps a little bit different because now we're talking about, um, just a whole different animal. We're talking about payroll, right? So they're going to want to see your payroll broken down based on your different classes of your, of the work that you do. So a lot of times it will get even very specific and ask for employee name and job duties. And they're going to want to see that broken down, especially if you're doing a fair amount of work where you're getting involved in carpentry work or any kind of trade work. So they're going to want to see that broken down by the particular employee. We're also going to want to see um, what you've done or what you have from a subcontractor standpoint to make sure that your subs have certificates of insurance for the workers' comp as well. Because if your subs don't have insurance, without going into too much detail, and then we want to watch the time, we could do a whole 30 minutes just on workers' comp but your subs need to have insurance too. So if your subs don't have insurance, you're opening up lots of potential exposure for yourself. My and recommendation is just to make sure all your subs have workers comp, you're in good, good shape. If they don't, there's this whole thing about independent contractors that maybe we should do another section another time. <laughs> yep. But you could go and grab those certificates from your same folder structure for your own thing. Here you go. Right. Yep. So that's the good thing is you want to, you, you need to make sure you're having um, your general liability certs, but you also want to make sure you're having your workers comp. Usually they're going to come in at one and the same, but um, they are different. And sometimes even different companies are providing them for the different trades. Gotcha. Well, at least for this episode, that wraps it up for me. <laughs> um, thanks for coming, uh, John. I, I appreciate it. I, I hope the listeners got something out of it. Uh, I'll leave it up to you anywhere uh, you want to point them to, to get a hold of you if they want to, and anything, any general idea or message you want to leave them with. The rest of the show is yours. Well, I, I think it's just really important to uh, make sure you work with a, an insurance company and an insurance agency that knows insurance for construction and architects and engineers. Um, there's just too many different things to look out for. If you don't have that expertise, that's really, really a problem. So I'd say first and foremost, make sure you get an agent that knows how to do that. We would uh, love to talk to you. Andrew uh, is one of my uh, um, commercial lines um, producers that is also really, really good at working on construction for these areas. And myself, and we'd love to talk to you and help you if you are interested. Feel free to reach out. My phone number is 303-292-9995. And uh, we'd love to uh, hear from you. Awesome. Thanks a lot. John. <laughs> Thanks a lot, John. 